0: At the turn of the 20th century, the United States of America stood at the crossroads, its greatness careening out of control into an anarchy of industrial filth, corporate greed, and an excess of power in the hands of a few. What it needed was a man, a great man, a larger-than-life man, a man who would tame the wild ambition and turn it into the kind of manly man that only a man could create. And just as the country needed him, he came from the offices of the Empire State to bring his manly leadership to the nation ready for him. He was Teddy Roosevelt, man of action. How
1: can I continue to go to work when my six-year-old child is sent to work with me working in the steel mills instead of going to school?
2: Never fear, citizen, for I shall enforce laws to send your
3: child out of that factory and into a desk. But the company will just ignore you. They own all the politicians and do what they want.
2: Ah, they have never seen someone as vigorous and determined as T.R. to stop the malefactors of wealth from running roughshod over the country.
1: Ooh, roughshod. Nice word.
3: But you are just a politician.
1: A
2: politician that single-handedly won the Battle of San Juan Hill and negotiated peace in Asia. I will break their trust apart and bring new hope to your child, for I am Teddy Roosevelt, Man of Action!
4: I cannot believe how beautiful the mountains
5: and prairies are. But the railroaders and the steelmen want to just build and build and
2: destroy them. Ah, they will never get that chance. But what can you do? I will create parks where all citizens can enjoy the beauty of the vistas of America as I did as a boy running cattle and building my heart. Presidents can do that? This president can. This president will. This president just did. For I am Jerry Roosevelt's man of action. And when I am done, I shall help your boys become strapping young men of America. That sounds great. With a man
4: like you, they will surely turn out just like
2: you. What about the girls? When they pursue manly pursuits like playing football, riding horses bareback, and marching to the battlefields of the world. War? I'm allergic to horse hair.
3: <laughs> What's football?
2: When we assert the role America should take in the new century by taking over the Philippine Islands.
4: I don't want my boy
2: to go to war. By inventing the country of Panama and driving a canal through it.
5: I'm glad I have girls.
2: Ah, by defeating the Spanish in our own hemisphere in Cuba.
3: What is football? We
2: shall clean up the muck, enforce the Monroe Doctrine. We shall walk softly, but a big stick behind...
4: That
5: is kind of twisted. What is football?
4: America can't just do anything and everything that it wants whenever it does.
1: I'll sign my boy up. I don't care what we do or how we do it. America is at its best when it is doing something. I bet if all the founding fathers did was think, we'd still be sipping tea and speaking English. I, uh,
3: uh.
4: You think he has a point?
3: Kinda. I mean, Roosevelt's a damn sight better than a lot of other presidents we've lived through. That's right. Fine, I'll sign my coup up for football.
2: Thank you, citizens. Together, America will not just be, America will do. Whether on the fields of play or commerce or war, we shall do and we shall prosper. We shall be a
0: country of
2: action!
0: And with that... A contradictory yet dynamic 26th president of the United States spread throughout the land, throughout history, throughout the legend and lore that was and is Teddy Roosevelt, Man of Action! Football? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, D.B. Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 26, Theodore Roosevelt. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to FracturedAtlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents The Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air. And in the Algorithms. Thank you. We are back with our Michigander Americanist contingent, Chelsea. Say hi. Hello. And James, say hi. Good evening, everyone. As I try to vary the introductions here and with our DB comedy crew of myself, Joe and. Hi, I'm Patrick. Hi, I'm Tom. Hi, I'm
5: Tommy or Thomas, whichever you wish to call me.
1: I am Sandy. I'm Sylvia,
4: and I'm making little Zoom hands like the girls in, in Zoom. Zooming hands. <laughs>
0: so if I may, I'd like to set the table tonight with a little quote. And while we can't share screen on the interwebs and on our various podcasting platforms, I'm going to do it here just to kind of make a point And maybe so, I think it's a kind of a fun way to jump. So... I read, with the assassination of President McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, not quite 43, became the youngest president in the nation's history. He brought new excitement and power to the presidency as he vigorously led Congress and the American public towards progressive reforms and a strong foreign policy. He took the view that the president as a steward of the people, should take whatever action necessary for the public good, unless expressly forbidden by law or the Constitution. I did not usurp power, he wrote, but I did greatly broaden the use of executive power. Those are the opening paragraphs in President Theodore Roosevelt's biographical information, as can be read today on whitehouse.gov.
6: Roosevelt is kind of the the perfect president to have at the opening of the 20th century, right? Because he marks this moment of a more activist president who is the head of a more activist government and an interventionist mm-hmm. government in in the lives of everyday people, right? Like this starts a new turn of the federal government towards being more involved in the everyday affairs of the common man, not just billionaires, right? Like business regulation that affects, um, you know, Pullman and, and these, these millionaires who we have been talking about in the late 19th century, but everyday humans, um, which I think is really important for us to understand that, that this is a, a pivot moment for America
7: also i i think he's one of like the first presidents who like he he's the president he sees himself as the president of the people and he uses the people as a cudgel against lawmakers yes right so he is he's all about like this is what roosevelt is doing for you guys this is what roosevelt is doing for the common people roosevelt is fighting your fight tell congress how dumb they are if they oppose me And, and you know so he's he's putting stuff out in the newspapers he's publishing images of himself you know he brings a photographer to literally everywhere he goes so they could take a picture of all the great work that Roosevelt is doing so in some ways he's kind of our first kind of like mass media president
6: you know who he reminds me of and you'll appreciate this James because I think we took this class together he's Caesar Augustus right he's like I want my picture everywhere I want everyone to know that Theodore Roosevelt did this I'm gonna write like appeal to the people, mm-hmm. the people are going to love me because of the nice things I did, and they're going to see me in the paper. So they know that I'm doing things right. Yeah. So is, we need to talk some time Augustus.
7: about how I think that Washington like, modeled his entire persona on on Augustus. Yes. And how like he, he tries to be the American Augustus in so many ways.
6: Even though he points and says, no, 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 I am Cincinnatus. Mm -hmm. I have retired to my farm. Do you see me retiring to my farm?
7: And here is
3: Columbus and Clevelandus and all the other Roman generals who became Ohio cities.
0: I sort of forgot how young he was when he became president. But as it happens, we have relatively recent history of relatively younger men with relatively short resumes ascending to the White House in rather rapid uh, succession, though. In you know those... young and
2: virile Donald Trump?
0: Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> young, attractive, good with a speech, coming at the right moment. Um, oh, you mean Nixon? He was only vice president. <laughs> so... you <Zero porn. laughs> <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to The Real Studs of American History. I'm your host, Andy Candias, and today we're going to explore one president, Theodore Roosevelt. That's the one who wasn't married to Eleanor. Just learn that. Chilling with me today are two natalie-attired historians in a stylishly nerd-chic Oxford and Slacks, is Dr. Dabney Nair, author of Theodore Roosevelt and American Life. And in what appears to be Virgil Abloh, is Dr. Paige Turner, author of Teddy Bear, America's First Queer-Coded President. So, what's up, docs? What's the skinny on this good thick boy? Well, Andy,
5: Theodore Roosevelt was a man of great contradictions.
8: Indeed, he was. By adopting the trappings of heteronormative male sexuality, like guns and army uniforms, Teddy exploited the homoerotic subtext of dominance and submission that fueled the imperialist movement of the late 19th century. One could argue that Teddy Roosevelt was engaging in a form of proto-cosplay. Oh,
2: well, don't call him a rough rider for nothing. <laughs> May I add... He was a
5: war who won a Nobel Peace Prize, an apostle for American capitalism who opposed big business. A president who combined the foreign policy of Dick Cheney and the domestic agenda of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, in short, a fascinating subject for a biography.
2: Yeah, sounds complicated. Uh, so, Paige, how big a stick was Teddy carrying?
8: Mm, Probably an average one. Dr. Nair, I'd like to unpack the colonialist implications of that AOC comparison.
5: What? Wouldn't you rather discuss Teddy's role in passing the Meat Inspection Act? Ooh, I would. That sounds fun. Let's dish.
3: This is my philosophy towards this discussion. I'm going to make an inflammatory statement and ask ask our beloved Americans to discuss and since Teddy was a very big man, um, emo- you know, spiritually and physically, you could stick a lot of labels on him. So the first label I would like to stick on our board, Teddy,
7: is Teddy Roosevelt, white supremacist. Oh, cool. wow. Let's hear All it. Right. I, I want to take it on because I've, I've thought about this. Um, <laughs> and I, I agree. I think that that's a fair label for for Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and I, I kind of... so. Teddy Roosevelt, I think, is perhaps the epitome of 19th century white masculinity. Like, he represents, like, all of these values that, you know, were kind of espoused by people in, you know, upper class white society as this is what it means to be a man. And some of those values are kind of interesting, you know, like, for example he was very well read. He was a nerd. I mean, he, you know, loved to go outside and, and play in the muck and, and he was a naturalist. You know, he spoke all these languages. And so, you know, some ideas that, you know, maybe we don't attach with modern masculinity, but I think in 19th century masculinity, we're very much like, this is what you should be. But I think one of those things and one of the ways that he was kind of, his worldview was informed by the society of the time was in the rise of this kind of, conflict of nations or conflict of civilizations thinking about race relations and how in the late 19th century there's kind of this idea that there's kind of this natural order of races and you know it's the you know you think of you know kipling and you know the white man's burden I and the white yeah i think theodore roosevelt bought into that and i think that you know his point of view as as wrong as it was was that you know, he felt like, oh, we have to lift up the lower races. But yes, of course, the white race has the dominant position in society and will because we're the most evolved and advanced race. That's, you know, that's what he would have said. So, yeah, yeah I, I think that is by definition a white supremacist. And therefore, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's a white Sylvia, supremacist. Sylvia, go.
4: Um, as the person of color at <laughs> this podcast, and God knows I am not defending t- uh, TR, but. Is not a bit of a stretch? I mean, let's look at all the presidents we've had up until him. To yep. just throw Teddy Roosevelt, white supremacist, kind of infers that the presidents prior to him weren't. So... Did
5: we amend the label to Teddy Roosevelt, another white supremacist?
4: Yes. Um, also, or, or, I don't did, even know... He did have Booker T. Washington come to the White House and met with him. Now, once that got out to the press and polite society was uh, outraged, they kind of walked it back saying, no, no, no. He didn't have dinner. It was a light supper of sandwiches and <laughs> and and uh, and uh, you know light beverages. And there were no white women. But in, because it was in, tiara was the lightest the of time.
0: beverages and lightest of suppers. Yes, yeah. I mean who was that going to sway? Also, who was like wait? Supper. It wasn't dinner. Oh,
5: then I'm fine.
2: Well,
4: <laughs> yeah, you always oh, it deal was with... just a snack. No, I'm it was sorry. it was a supper.
5: I'm and... no
2: longer angry. You got to yes. deal with the, the light milk toast racists.
6: Yeah, who so are just like a little
2: bit racist,
6: right? And I, th- and I think there so I think there's two things going on, right? Like I will 100% agree with James that Roosevelt, especially when it comes to America exerting her power in um, foreign nations, especially those populated by black and brown people. Um, he definitely does espouse, um, a sense of American exceptionalism and a sense of paternalism that right. America has to take care of these people. Um, and that is very much prevailing politics and culture and quote science at the time. Um, so being a really well-read person, of course, like this is going to come into his kind of cultural milieu. You know, I will agree with Sylvia, though, that, right, so Roosevelt had Black guests over uh, to the governor's mansion when he was the governor of New York. He, of course, has Booker T. Washington over, which I think, so I actually, one of the things that um, really stood out to me, because I knew we were going to have this conversation, so I rewatched an interview with Lonnie Bunch, the original direct, the founding director of the National Museum of African American Culture. Mm -hmm. I remembered him saying how important what an important symbol it was that Roosevelt invites Booker T Washington over specifically this person who is a seen as a real leader in the African American community right so by in, inviting the most important black person in America to the White House was not just like a a casual thing It's meant to send a real message to black Americans. The other thing that I will say is that Roosevelt is very opposed to these kinds of, as he calls them, lily white Southern Republicans because of their excluding newly freed African Americans from holding office and from voting. And so he does punish racist white Southerners by not giving them appointments I guess, take that for what it is. I So this is the one moment where I will say, I will him and I will ha and I will like be on the line and say, Theodore Roosevelt, I will not apply an extremist label to you, but otherwise, I'm a problem.
0: there you go. Right. One of the reasons I wanted to lead with that White House Gov uh, quote, is something that I know we had been talking about a little bit, and that is that w- one of the things that, and by the way, uh, Paul, you will have a chance to inflame us more later, I promise you. Um, no, and, I and,
3: and
2: by the way, just for the sake of you know citing our sources, because now we have to do that, Joe. <laughs> uh, that quote was from President of the United States of America by Frank Friedel and Hugh Seidey.
0: Okay. Um. But what we one of the things we t- we've talked about in many of our episodes was the faux modesty that kind of runs through really from Washington. <laughs> we had a little bit of a diversion with Andrew Jackson, I suppose, but this this is a clear, clean, absolute, thunderous break from that because. While I'm sure TR had a certain amount of um, promotion behind him, nobody could promote TR better than TR. Chelsea, you've been bursting through your square here. Go.
6: Which is so interesting because Washington is Theodore Roosevelt's favorite president. Like he does not care for Thomas Jefferson. Good for him. Well <laughs> done. Um but openly, like, talks about George Washington as being a model of the presidency. And you're like, but did you miss that part? What parts were you reading?
2: <laughs> the parts about chopping down cherry trees and yes. uh, having Fighting teeth-
6: wars against <laughs> progressors. I think I think Go think ahead, so.
1: understood the humble brag. He knew that Washington's humility and modesty were just a cloak. So he's like, I know what Washington was really going for. I know. As TR what Washington was really about.
3: Yeah, Washington had won a war and that's going to that was going to draw TR's admiration. He uh, he loved warriors.
2: And I think uh he could relate to George Washington's uh being from an incredible amount of money but pretending to be a humble farmer. And man of the country. A
0: sickly.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, Jefferson tried that also. A sickly a boy farmer. Yeah, he was a
0: sick you No, know, TR was the sickly boy who had to nurture and practically put his own new heart in himself and so had to punch
3: death. asthma to, in the face until it. Died. That's
0: right. God. Damn. Okay, everybody,
3: here comes Teddy Roosevelt's professional annoyance. Oh.
4: It's amazing how, how all head you head can thing.
3: get. He kind of got kicked up to the position of vice president because he was such a menace in all of his other jobs.
2: He got a lot Is of good going too far,
3: a good fail forward career. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm.
1: didn't they want to put him in there just to shut him up? Let's to put him, him in a useless position because at that I mean, we all know how people thought felt about the vice presidency.
0: Well, how did he get? To, how did he make himself? Well, before he got to D.C., what was he doing that made him, made people say, get out of here, go to D.C., so to speak? He started well, out in the New York Assembly, I believe. Just to, just to clarify the timeline, that's his first job, sort of reforming New York City. Then he, apparently he goes with the Rough Riders.
3: He was Secretary of Na- the Navy the before. Yeah. Oh, it's that's
7: assistant a Assistant secretary. secretary. And I believe oh,
5: we, have we not skipped over him being governor? No. That
7: was I'm after, good, yeah. came, that was after the Rough Riders. He, I, he went from the, I thought he went from the New York City police to the New York assembly. He served yep. as assemblyman assembly first. Police. Assemblyman first. And then, then he had guys. his whole, it, it, so he was the assemblyman. Then his wife and mother died. Then he has his whole teddy in the wilderness phase. Oh boy. <laughs> he comes <laughs> oh back as police commissioner. Yep. And then
6: civil service commissioner.
7: Yep. And then assistant secretary of the Navy. Yep. Then, then the Rough Riders. he does his whole Rough Riders Arnold bit. And, the Rough Riders. Exactly. and then he comes back and is elected governor of New York. Beating a Tammany Hall machine, <laughs> yeah. Judge. Yeah.
2: See, so but, much like his hero, George Washington, he uh, he just stuck his nose into someone else's business and started a war.
3: Mr. Roosevelt, please come in and have a seat.
2: Ah, Secretary Long, you'll find my manly legs quite like my iron will. They shan't bend that easily.
3: Uh, very well. We need to discuss your performance as Undersecretary of late.
2: Boy, I've executed the duties of this office with the same gusto I'd use to execute a horse thief, and with much the same delight.
3: Yes, you've uh, made your delight very clear. You've mentioned to many naval planners that you support a war with the Spanish Empire. Yes! And then you've publicly stated that any war would be good for the American people. Makes men men there. And once I left for a massage, and when I came back, you'd purchased several battleships. Got quite the bargain, too. And then, after the main explosion, you sent out orders to the entire fleet to prepare for battle with the Spanish. Even though you don't have that authority. That's right. And even though President McKinley made it clear he does not want to pursue an imperialist war...
2: Agree to disagree.
3: So, you've grossly overstepped the bounds of your station, and you've certainly led the country into an international war. You may see where I'm going with this.
2: I believe I do, Secretary Long. I shall tender my resignation from this esteemed office forthwith.
3: I think that's best. It's uh, very noble of you to and admit- gather
2: together a ragtag group of misfits to form a cowboy cavalry unit that just might win this thing.
3: I'm sorry, what?
2: That's right. Americans from all walks of life, Princeton javelin throwers, Comanche scouts, ex-outlaws coming straight from serving time at Yuma, the entire outfit for the 1897 Brooklyn Bridegrooms. Ha! Ah, sure, it'll be tough. Early in the training process, the men will be awful at their duties, and what's more, they won't like each other. Or trust me.
3: Uh, why are you predicting your own failure? But
2: that's just because I'm the first authority figure to believe in them. After a few months of training, or one long montage, I'll turn them into the toughest soldiers who ever spat on a Spaniard.
3: Um, on second thought, this could be more dangerous. And that's
2: when we'll ride our horses across the sea and storm into Cuba like a... Well, like a tropical storm, I suppose. Those are usually pretty deadly on that island, no?
3: Um, Mr. Roosevelt... Hearing your ambitions is making me reconsider. Allow me to reinstate you immediately, and we can put all this behind us.
2: And miss the fun of a war? Never!
3: Please. The potential for destroying our diplomatic relations is too great. I'll double your salary. Triple it, even!
2: Adventure is the only currency I accept. Jolly ho <laughs>
3: How did you get a horse into my office?
7: And then he caused so much problems, it, you know, that basically he wouldn't follow orders from the Republican Party as governor of New York. They orchestrated to kick him upstairs into the vice presidency because they figure he couldn't do any damage there, even though William McKinley was like, no. Not this guy. This guy's crazy. Please know. But
2: he's the only guy who will ever do anything as vice president. Don't let him do it.
6: Right. And that's what I love. I love that when when there starts to be like these whispers that, like, ooh, Roosevelt has vice president, he like makes a public statement. He's like, Why would I want such a powerless position? This is dumb. That sounds awful. So that's I the closest he gets
0: to a humble brag. It's, I'm collecting all
5: of this as even, evidence that he that he shot McKinley.
6: <laughs>
5: all of this establishes motive. Well,
2: I mean it's 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 a pattern it's that we've seen before. Bread. It's a pattern we've seen before though where whenever yeah. you have a person who is only vice president because no one else likes him, then the president dies and he becomes the president.
3: No, Teddy I boy. Mean, admitted he was a lousy lawyer. He trained as a lawyer. I don't think he ever practiced as one, and he was really pissed off when the Supreme Court disagreed with them. Not only—actually, when the Supreme Court ruled in his favor, he was unhappy because anyone dissented, especially people he he appointed. So when he says that, you know, except for for, expressly forbidden by the law or Constitution— that's uh, he figured that nothing was forbidden by the law or the constitution as long as he wanted to do it.
6: My god,
4: he's the president. Wait a minute, are you saying that if the president does it, then it's it's not illegal? (laughs)
5: Pretty much. I've
4: heard that before.
5: Speaking Uh, of, I thought the strangest part of that was that the first sentence kind of loosely implies that he did the assassination. (laughs) (laughs) With the assassination, Theodore Roosevelt became president. Like, he was, like, the assassin. Now now that he got that done. done. (laughs) That's the
4: the Lyndon Johnson uh, killed (laughs) Kennedy. uh, Same conspiracy. Or Alexander
0: Haig killed Ronald Reagan.
2: How does Edith breathe in this corset? <clears throat> Leon! Leon, wake up, darling!
0: Uh, 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 who are you?
2: Oh, why don't you recognize me, Leon dear? I'm Emma Goldman, the dangerous female radical. We spoke a few weeks ago after I gave a speech at the Cleveland Hall, remember?
0: Oh, yes, right. Uh, but did you have a mustache then?
2: Of course! It's, it's just less noticeable in the daylight, Oh,
0: I see. Uh, what are you doing in my bedroom?
2: Uh, Leon, sweetheart, do you recall asking if there was anything you could do to further the cause of anarchy?
0: Yes, I do. You said I should go home and learn more so I won't sound so stupid. Heavens, what a shrew
2: I I can be. (laughs) Anyway, I couldn't speak honestly because Pinkertons were eavesdropping.
0: I didn't see any Pinkertons.
2: Of course there are Pinkertons.
0: How do you think I found?
2: I mean, I'm so glad I found you. I've been thinking of your noble offer, and I believe you're the perfect man to attempt to kill President McKinley.
0: Attempt to kill McKinley?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. yes. You don't have to actually kill him. (laughs) Ida will get so upset that McKinley will quit the White House so he can spend his life draping handkerchiefs over her face.
0: Are you sure that's a good idea, Emma? I mean, look at Europe. Anarchists are blowing up train stations and assassinating kings all over the place.
2: Yes, isn't it
0: disgusting? <clears throat> I mean, delightful. <laughs> it would be if the governments weren't guillotining anarchists and imprisoning dissenters en mass.
2: Oh, so what? That's Europe. This is America. Plead insanity. Americans relish the opportunity to give speeches and write editorials about inadequate mental health care.
0: Emma... I've failed at every single thing I try to do, but what if I slip up and I actually kill McKinley? Uh, Like the bullet can pierce all the blubber on that whale.
2: Well, then you'll rid the world of a dangerous imperialist.
0: (laughs) And replace him with Roosevelt, a vainglorious lunatic. I most certainly am. (coughs)
2: He most certainly is not. He's a brilliant, vigorous man. Oh, but his presidency will be doomed when the sluggards in Congress curtail jealous of his popularity and start a new civil war, which will destroy the country. Anarchy, show in the day. yeah.
0: But Emma, didn't you discourage the use of violence?
2: Oh, because I didn't think it would work. But a brilliant, handsome young assassin like you cannot fail to persuade the masses of the rightness of our cause.
0: Do you really think I'm handsome?
2: Oh, you pink-cheeked pole, you'll be the handsomest assassin in U.S. history. Lewis Powell is a gargoyle next to you.
0: Who's Lewis Powell?
2: Never mind. Anyway, President McKinley will attend the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo this September. I want you to shoot at him in front of a crowd. The police will claim that my speech inspired you and arrest me as an accomplice. Plus, you're...
0: An actual accomplice.
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. We're all accomplices in the conspiracy to save the world. Uh, Think of it, Cleon. We'll be in the same prison. Uh, Maybe they'll allow us conjugal visits. Won't that be fun
0: Not for me, it won't. Emma, I'm asexual.
2: No, you're not. No one is asexual.
0: I am. I've never even kissed a girl. Or a boy, for that matter. I've never even had an erection.
2: That's the stupidest thing I've ever had. Let me see. Uh, Emma, what are you doing with my bedclothes? You're right. Still limp as an earthworm, even when in bed with a hot tomato like me. Well, that settles it. You must kill President McKinley to restore your virility.
0: Well, if you say so. Gosh, Emma, are you sure you aren't Teddy Roosevelt in an oversized flannel dress? (gasps)
2: How dare you? I am a beautiful, dainty woman, and you have the nerve to compare me to the most ruggedly handsome man in the world. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I shall never forgive you, Leon, unless you attempt to assassinate President McKinley. I'm
0: sorry, Emma. Uh, I'll do what you say. Uh, do you really think we'll share a prison cell?
2: You don't find the idea repulsive?
0: I, I, I don't anymore. That slap had a strange effect on me. Here, take another look under my blankets,
2: Christ, you're a freak, <laughs> a freakishly compassionate man, <laughs> uh, anyway, there's a good little terrorist. I'll see you in prison. Uh,
0: no kiss, good night.
2: Would you settle for another slap?
0: Oh, that's even better.
2: Well, here's a blow for progress.. <laughs> ah.
4: I would actually,
5: I, I think like, you know, you look at him and he held so many careers in such a short time. He's really more the Barbie of the early 20s.
3: <laughs> I'm a teddy boy. In
0: a teddy <laughs> world. <That> is, pretty- <laughs> is there anything else you would like to inflame us with, Paul, before we sort of hit a little bit of, try to figure out a little bit of a timeline of, Tr. <laughs> um,
3: okay. Um, let's try this very modern term. Let's see if we can, you know, stick it across Teddy Roosevelt's broad manly chest. And this is coming straight at you, Chelsea. And <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, environmentalist, <laughs> just as bad
6: as the other two.
0: Yeah.
6: <laughs> um, Roosevelt's commitment to conservation is part of his square deal, right? Which I'm sure we'll get to later in this show, Um, but was one of his three major goals for um, his presidency and very much comes from his kind of transformative, you know, manly American experience out West. He's able to find himself out West. And so he is convinced of the value of these beautiful natural places for the benefit of all Americans. I will say, um, he does not, however, in sectioning off beautiful places for the National Park Service, he also does not bar, how should we say this? He does not bar capitalism from enjoying (laughs) areas of that space as well.
3: (laughs) Speaking of animals, how do we square his, his, you know, images, you know, protector of the environment with the fact that he really, really of killing things.
2: Animals are delicious, Paul.
3: I mean, (laughs) yeah, you look at... Wouldn't you
2: agree, Sandy?
5: (laughs) But I mean, the bison population largely came back because we, you know, white people started eating them. I think well, also, there's, uh,
7: yeah. you can't, you can't hunt things if they, if they, you know, put a strip mine in your old hunting ground, right you know, I, I think that that's what Roosevelt would have said is, you know, that's like, true. look, the, part of, in Roosevelt's mind, part of the recreation of natural space was game hunting. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, he wanted there to be land where those animals could thrive naturally so that he could go and kill them.
6: Right. So one of the most interesting things about the whole, uh, hunting in the national parks, idea right is the national parks are established so that game cannot be hunted on that land um which is actually one of the major points of contention between the national park service or and forest service um, and native american tribes right because so much of that land is carved out of native space um that was used for hunting grounds and you better believe that park rangers will fine jail or however else they want to punish um native americans if they come on the park and are hunting or fishing um and it till this day is still a huge point of contention between native tribes and the park service so like game hunting to preserve animal or like conservation to protect animals and to protect game but not on that land as soon as they cross that that invisible line sure shoot them but not on that land.
0: Uh, you say, plus hunting is very manly. And it's not like he had, like, birds thrown in front of him and was drinking that he'd shoot a buddy of his in the neck. Uh, you know, like there. <laughs> nor, nor did he presumably take down any big game from a helicopter.
5: Correct. There
2: you go. <laughs> if he um, had one, though, he probably would have
6: yeah.
5: cried. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think he wouldn't have found that sporting. I could see him jumping from a helicopter.
2: On to, <laughs> jumping from a heli- helicopter onto an elk and then wrestling it.
5: Yeah, that seems right. Cool. He he did help, you know, non-violently settle a coal strike, which is and not, I think not that, for nothing. Yeah, it, you
7: know? That he, he was very much like, his trust busting wasn't necessarily like he hated industry or he hated capitalism. I don't think either of those things are remotely true. But I think that he had a sense that you know, experience. okay. If these trusts are going to exist, they have to actually benefit somebody, and so, you know, not just the the you know two rich guys who own them, and and so when he saw trusts kind of blatantly abusing their power, he took action to kind of as he saw rebalance the scales, and that the coal strike was one of those examples. Where was yeah. this coal and strike?
6: Nineteen oh
2: two. It was Eastern Pennsylvania as uh, a
7: strike by the United Bond Workers of America in nineteen oh two. Can we circle back and talk about the pure food and drug act and the meat inspection act for a second
0: to the jungle and the muckraking? Because I I think that's some
7: good old Chicago politics here. When we talk about the, uh, you know, kind of his, his lasting impact is as a president. um, I think this idea that the federal government has a role in kind of regulating kind of day to day commercial activities is a significant one. you know, the federal government had regulated kind of these big, like the railroads and you know interstate shippers and stuff like that. Stuff that you know you and I or the common people don't really kind of interact with. I mean, I guess they interacted with the railroads, but um, you know, not in the same kind of hand-to-mouth kind of way. Whereas you know Roosevelt's saying, "Oh, oh yeah, the federal government they can actually say whether or not you can sell this piece of meat or not. The federal government can say what you can tell people when you're going around selling patent medicines." That, I think, is an important legacy uh, and one that uh, his uh, nephew is going to lean hard on.
1: So we have to remember the cattle industry then was about as big and influential and powerful as the railroad.
0: Armour, Swift, and oh, yeah.
1: So, and that, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Go ahead, oh, Sandy. Not, not even just the, the meat packers in Chicago, but the cattle ranchers yep. out west.
5: Which cheat sometimes.
1: They were corporate. That was agribusiness actually started then. We yes. think of agribusinesses, you know, Monsanto now, but no agribusiness was a thing back then.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about stuff he did. Again, we war stuff got that covered. Um, a little of the environmentalism got a little bit of that. I mean, I know, and because I do political work and union work, that the whole trust busting thing. Was certainly something that we were taught as kids as something really important to him and what's important because of him.
4: My understanding is he did it not so much for the American good per se, but because the uh, leaders of industry didn't feel they had to um, knuckle under to what the president and the government wanted. So it was more of an affront to his ego as opposed to. I'm doing this for the the greater good, the
2: common well, man, the little Well, guy. I think he had he had always made the idea of uh, corruption, both in in corporations and in public service, a large part of his politics. So I think I don't think you you can necessarily say it's, it's all just an affront to his ego that they won't knuckle under to him. He just uh, always hated people who took advantage of their power and career because he was a born rich man and can make that decision
0: no yes. liege.
6: so i think this is one of the key points right and and i'm gonna probably tag team with james here um on this one right part of that late 19th century early 20th century culture of masculinity right is this sense of Oh, James, help me here. Like the sense of like upfrontness and, um, right. Not right. your power when you have it.
7: And- right. It's this, I think as a, a sense of, I think do bless oblige is really the right word for it. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that when you have, yes. when you come into a position of power, you should use it for the good of people. With great
0: comes great responsibility.
7: Yes. Uh, And I think that he saw people who had great power using it simply for their own self-enrichment. And that kicked him off. And he said, you need to stop doing that. And they said, no. And then he's like, you don't say no to me. And... (laughs) Theodore Roosevelt.
6: So this, to me, the sense of, of fairness, right? Like people who have power and wealth not abusing their power and wealth for their own gain um but right this this sort of uh sense of fairness um that really comes out in his use of the term square deal which becomes kind of a a tagline throughout his entire presidency that he uses you know not only for um environmentalism and but he uses it for civil rights and he uses it for um trust busting and he uses it for labor right a square deal for this group a square deal for that group right every group kind of getting their um their say and their due um
0: and a cousin that was taking notes right down to square deal Eh, i can do something a little better with that
6: (laughs) and it comes out of like a, a 1901 i think a 1901 speech Right, a square deal for every man every woman big or rich small or poor and so oh, i really messed that up big or rich big or small rich or poor there we go was um he- oh go ahead tommy what
5: Did you say was he talking about
0: country duo big and rich
6: yes <laughs> it was actually a promo for them yeah he was very he,
0: have a square deal. Deal. he would have never he would never believed save a horse ride a cowboy though never kind of anathema
2: Also, especially because his attorney general was Philander Knox, which is just such a good name.
3: (laughs) And his secretary of war was Elihu Root.
0: So part of of the myth is surrounding himself with cartoonishly weird names that just make Theodore Roosevelt sound all the more noble.
3: And his best friend for life was another imperialist, another patrician. And a really <laughs> sneaky son of a bitch by the name of Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, oh, I thought you were gonna like I thought you were gonna
2: say uh, one of his uh, closest advisors and friends was uh Admiral Butt.
3: yeah, Archie Butt <laughs> But Archie but Mr. Butt was not as divisive a figure. <laughs> I had to. Sure. Lodge was, I think, this. Well, I don't know if he was a co-conspirator. I don't know if he, how much influence he had on Roosevelt or vice versa. But he was there for the entire imperialist um, enterprise, and they remained very close, you know, throughout his president, throughout their president, <laughs> throughout Teddy's presidency.
6: The Great White Fleet.
3: <laughs> what about that Great White Fleet?
6: It's white and it's great. You can take that symbolism however you want, uh, based on Paul's first inflammatory statement of the evening. Um, really, it's the quote... I'm See, I'm going to say quote instead of just doing quotes. It's the, quote, peacetime color of battleships.
5: So it's the peacetime color for a ship designed explicitly for making war.
6: Yes. But Did he send wearing the great our, white
5: fleet
3: to, quote, Panama, close quote?
6: We're wearing our peacetime coat. So we're... At peacetime, right now, uh, which I just work I like, like
4: a satire hat. A summer attire. You, you wear white uh, after <laughs> <laughs> Memorial well, he, Day. But he was God from high society. Labor Day. It's wartime. Is it <laughs>
5: possible that in summertime ships are all supposed to be wearing They're white?
7: In white. Yes.
4: Okay. Yeah. As a teacher, it's a wager, I can is you. that
7: Labor Day to Memorial Day is wartime. Yes, that is
6: accurate.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Chelsea. Now that we've made several very good jokes about it, what the hell was the Great White Fleet?
6: So the Great White Fleet is um, Roosevelt's... um, It's, it's, again, being Naval Secretary, um, he has uh, a special affinity for ships, especially battleships, um, and sees uh, the Atlantic Fleet um, as being this kind of... um, Point of pride for America, a new kind of America, a more interventionist and active America on the world stage. Um, right. And we also need to remember what is going on elsewhere in the world. This is also a time where other major uh, powers are building up their uh, naval fleets. So Roosevelt thinks that he's just kind of copying, right, Germany and France and Russia and Britain. Um, right. We're just following suit. Uh, But what he does is not only does he build up the naval fleet of America, he then takes it around a tour of the world to show off America's new naval power. Teddy
3: Roosevelt in the Navy. Well, he (laughs) led the village people, I say, in in the Rough Riders. So yeah, Teddy Teddy Roosevelt (laughs) was the village people. He was a natural man. Yes, he was. It should be noted, of course, that... uh, as the United States is becoming a rising power, there were two other nations attempting to assert themselves on the global stage, and those would happen to be Germany and Japan. Yeah. And he well, had a pretty decent relationship with Kaiser Wilhelm, as I recall, right up until he, you know, they brutal Germany brutalized Belgium in World War One. But Japan, well, I
2: think you could argue also he started uh, having a less good relationship with Kaiser Wilhelm uh, around the time that the German fleet started blockading Venezuela and he realized, hey, maybe Germany is trying to become an empire and that's our job.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Also, if if you're looking for a character with amusing anecdotes, Kaiser Wilhelm is a treasure trove. Because the guy did not know how to act. He did not know how to act. He offended everybody just by like everything he did. He stuck at his foot like he didn't mean to, like, but every single time he opened his mouth, he said something dumb, he offended somebody, he acted inappropriately, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and was just one of the most disastrous political figures of the early 20th century.
6: Yes. And
3: there was never anyone like him again. Let me can, okay. One more inflammatory maybe not the last one, but Definitely another not. inflammatory or at least perhaps over broad, descript, you know label for Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, peacemaker. Well, the Nobel Committee
0: certainly thought so, but then they also gave one to Henry, Henry Kissinger. So
3: yeah. not to mention well, his good good friend Woodrow Wilson mm-hmm. for a man uh. who prized. Honesty and forthrightness above all things. He was one crafty motherfucker.
2: Ooh, see that big slow moving one with the spectacular plumage? Huh, that head will look magnificent on the Roosevelt Trophy wall. Steady, steady.
5: Papa. Can I go back to Washington? I don't like being on this safari.
2: Why, Kermit? Is it because such rugged outdoor activity offends your cultivated and slightly feminized sensibilities? No, Papa, it's because we're in Central Park. Well, I've no other option since I can't get my trust-busting agenda past those blasted stand-patters in Congress, thanks to the cursed robber barons here in Manhattan. Ooh. You see that actuary in the tweed coat? Oh, I'd wager that he got separated from J.P. Morgan's herd. Ah! Papa,
5: have you thought maybe you can go out on the stump and campaign for progressive Republican candidates? It seems a less drastic step than shooting people.
2: Ah, such delicacy of feeling is unbecoming in a young fellow. Ah! Here, come it, take the skinning knife and cut the hide off that deposit plant. It might awaken some healthy bloodlust in you.
5: Papa, you can't go around killing
2: people just because you dislike them. It's illegal. If the president does it, that means it's not illegal. That lawyer over there would tell you the same thing. (coughs) Or he would have. (laughs) Ha ha, Besides, why do you assume I dislike the people I kill? I have the greatest respect for the creatures I slaughter, be they cobra or Cuban. That's why, after I've sent you out of the brush to butcher up this auditor... ...we'll leave his entrails for the pigeons as an offering to nature.
5: Papa, I promise you, once you leave the White House, I'll go on an African safari with you and we'll massacre hundreds of innocent creatures. Until then, can we
2: please leave the financiers to the Department of Justice? <laughs> Kermit, dear boy, I'm planning to run for president so many times that I'll die in office. <laughs> what other giant of a man will protect the public from predators?
5: Please, Papa, you've earned a rest. Leave these moneyed miscreants to Taft. He'll crush them, and then you can wander the world, killing in peace. Kermit.
2: Maybe you have a point. For too long, I've allowed America to hoard my greatness. Perhaps it's time I dazzle the rest of the globe. All right, second born son, I'll indulge you. We'll head for Pennsylvania station and hop a train for Washington, right after dinner.
5: Are you suggesting we dine on that merchant banker?
2: Oh heavens no, I was suggesting Delmonico. Who do you think I am, James Gay Polk? Of course not, Papa. He was a Democrat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Molly! Sure seems like had he run in 1908, he would have, but he apparently made a promise that he would step aside. And for that vice president, William Howard Taft, our next
3: our next president.
0: But
7: uh, he was said. not the vice president. I, I thought Taft had been the secretary of war. Secretary yeah, of War and,
3: Gov- and, Mil- and governor of the Philippines. And apparently a very good one because he had to, because no one tried to kill him after, you know, American soldiers were <laughs> massacring Filipinos by the thousands.
0: TR could have run, decided not to at least in 08
7: following Washington's example right this is his whole Washington it was ah thing. Mm-hmm. it was because he 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 because he came in in the first half of uh, McKinley's second term he he saw that as his first term right. saw running in 1904 as his second term and they were they kind of put him on the spot after he won in 1904 and they're like you're not going to run for a third term and he's like no no follow I'm going to follow Washington's example just two terms. And then, you know, 1907 rolls around and he's like, God
1: damn it. What was I thinking? Immediately regretted it.
7: Immediately yeah. regrets it. I wanted
5: to talk about his post-presidency. And I guess what I would say, Paul, because I know you'd mentioned it earlier, an extension of his madness. He goes wow. on that famed African safari to oh. stock the Smithsonian, yeah, uh, which has all kinds of horrible, colonial and racist implications did
2: the smithsonian ask him to do that or was that just a decision he made i
5: doubt it it was funded by them so they knew at least he didn't just like show up with a bunch of carcasses i could see i could
2: see it it being i could see roosevelt pulling off a thing where he just like starts sending bodies to the smithsonian (laughs) i got these for you yeah, At that, first, they're, they're very like like like, threatened cat. by it, but then they're like, oh, that Roosevelt.
5: Well, I, I think the more telling one even is that he, uh, you know, he and both he and his son, who will later, I believe it's the same son who dies in World War One, almost die mapping the
3: worst part of uh, the Amazon, yeah, the real was Kermit. Oh, Kermit. Kermit, yeah. Kermit survived to World War II when he killed himself in Alaska, but uh, it was Quentin who died in World War One. Bunnykins, you'd have thought the
7: safaris would have satisfied him, but no. He, he wants was- to be president. He wants so, and especially when World War One rolls around, he feels oh. like he's the man for that moment. Uh, and and then he's not, and I think that kills him. And then it literally killed his son. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Did, mm. did he consider
5: that he was splitting the vote?
7: I think that he thought that 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 he would win. That he would through his own kind of personal, um, appeal that, you know, people remembering, Hey, remember the good times with Teddy, uh, that he would win a majority. I don't think he ever really saw it as a, as a partisan thing. Um, but that's, that's the way it turned out.
6: As he says th- about Taft during that election, I'm sure he means well, but he means well feebly. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, nah, I'm gonna win this. I think
2: I think also there was an, uh, a certain extent to which Roosevelt thought the progressive party would split the billionaire vote.
7: Mm-hmm. And so
2: that like he, he uh, in a speech, he, he mentioned that uh, all the monopolies and the trusts oppose the progressive party. And so they, they would be forced to choose between either Wilson or Taft. And so maybe there's an uh, extent to which he was like, if I run, my with my bull moose out, uh, then <laughs> <laughs> You heard me. You run, you run with a bull this... moose out, <laughs> and uh, like the rich people vote will split between the Democrats and the Republicans, and he'll take all the progressives and the uh, poor people.
7: And also the uh he he the black people in the, Republican... the North, but not the South. He sought the Republican nomination before going right, right, right. So he yeah. tried to. Kind of take it from taft and then when he was denied he went his own way
3: wasn't it a pretty sneaky way i don't didn't Elihu root now turned opponent didn't he kind of re-engineer the uh rules of the 1912 convention in in chicago because they were always in chicago back then to deny teddy a return to power it was so he was a maverick so he, teddy the, form, the formerly the consummate insider was suddenly the maverick screwed by his own former
7: party i guess i I don't know what the inside story there is but i know that teddy trying to unseat an incumbent it's it's always going to be a tough road because those people have so much institutional support kind of baked in and and so it proved to be
0: well that leads to
6: i love his cv cowboy
0: yeah. <laughs> well, oh and again, it leads to, again, that that intro, because, I mean, he, he does occasionally pop up on, on a few lists sort of on the bottom 10 when you list 10 greatest presidents and we haven't actually talked a little about some of the things he did do, although we've alluded to some things, some of which we, I think we like, like the national parks and the muckraking and some of the trust-busting, but we are kind of approaching this whole, is he a myth because of who he was as a personality, or did he actually do a few things that justifies
3: it? Got another oh. label stick on him, and we can argue. Teddy Roosevelt. Although, Joe, I will uh, counter. Uh, he's actually... Uh-
2: scored in the top uh quartile uh of presidents on every rating list that's ever been put out Interesting. the lowest he's usually rated four, between fourth and seventh
6: and he's still disappointed that he's not number one he's going um, to beat up all of the <laughs> other presidents who are in front of him if so only he
7: had out. one more term happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
8: trying to tell me that firing a gun is not a symbolic ejaculation?
5: Maybe. But more important, it's a damned efficient way to kill 29
2: zebras. Okay, okay, thank you for getting Greenpeace and Peter to troll my show now. So... I hear his daughter Alice could really throw some shade.
5: Out of loyalty to her father, (sighs) because she was the last voice of the progressive wing of the Republican Party, for which her father was the standard bearer.
8: And she was responding to her father's subconscious influence by becoming the physical manifestation of the feminine impulses which so shamed him.
5: Oh, please. Theodore Roosevelt was 100%
8: butch. To compensate for the fact that he was 100% femme. Wow, Teddy was a stereotypical lesbian couple all by himself. Now, he invaded Cuba. Can we talk cigars? Would you mind? We are trying to have an argument. Fine, but
2: can't you argue about something my listeners care about? Like, did Teddy Roosevelt enjoy threesomes? I'm sure T.R. believed that three is a crowd.
8: And on that, at least, we agree. Goodbye, candy ass. It's candy ass! Believe
2: me. I thought this was my show. I'll see myself out. Thank, Thank you. you. Props to whoever is shipping you to. Shipping us where?
0: DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Jouet, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Gina Bacola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph fedarko Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, Tommy Spears, and Louise Thomas. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph fedarko Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to D.B. Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the D.B. Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on D.B. Comedy and the electables, visit D.B. Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at D.B. Comedy or Democracy Burlesque, and join us on the Trident Network. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.